2: And welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi.
1: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
2: He'd be no conventional politician. In fact, he insists that politics is best avoided. But a man who has been a central banker across two countries is rumored to be eyeing up Canada's top spot. We ask Mark Carney about his intentions to run for prime minister.
1: And the idea of teenagers reading out their diaries on TikTok seems to entirely undermine what diaries are supposed to be for. But there's a long history of these private musings being made public, if not, like, TikTok public. First up, though,
3: In mid-December, things were looking really good for Tencent.
1: Don Wineland is our China business and finance editor.
3: Tencent is China's biggest internet company by many measures. It's one of the world's biggest gaming companies. It also runs the country's biggest messaging and payments app called WeChat. (laughs) In mid-December, it released a game called Dreamstar. Dreamstar is this multiplayer so-called party game where players speed around a track in the form of cartoon ducks and sheep and pandas. They have cannonballs firing at them. It's kind of like Mario Kart or something like that. And so the big hope for Tencent was that this new game would be able to compete with Eggie Party, which is a very similar party game that was released by NetEase, a rival game developer, last year. Things were looking good, 10 cents share price was up, and then just a couple days later, the Chinese gaming regulators signaled that they would cap in-game spending, and this is a large source of revenue for these companies. And of course, that caused these companies' share prices to fall. Uh,
0: Tencent plunged by 12% overnight in Hong Kong, wiping out $43 billion, 43.5 in market value. Net ease fell by nearly 25%, generated 80.
3: Soon after that, the regulator did a bit of an about-face. It walked back some of these harsher regulations, and the share prices of the companies stabilized. This whole incident sheds light not just on the. Chinese gaming industry, but on some of the contradictions within the Communist Party's policy towards gaming and technology.
1: Well, what is going on then? What light like, does that shed?
3: The biggest tech companies like Tencent, like NetEase, like Alibaba, which is a a huge e-commerce company, have grown enormously over the past couple of years. Their role in everyday life is very, very big. In China, you know, you use just a couple apps to essentially do everything from paying your rent to ordering all sorts of different kinds of things. And the scale of these companies has made the Communist Party uncomfortable. So starting at the end of 2020, Regulators began hitting them with all sorts of new requirements. There was a lot of anti-monopoly regulations that came out, and this wiped more than a trillion dollars off of Chinese tech stocks. What's going on behind these regulations is a desire to make sure these massive Internet companies fit in with the Communist Party's plan. And it's impacted different industries differently. Gaming has had some pretty big hits over the past couple of years. Gaming stocks have been nailed many times. Online education was obliterated in 2021. So instead of investing in gaming companies and social media companies, the government would prefer investors look at what's often called hard tech. So companies that make semiconductors. Companies that are building cloud computing networks and infrastructure, artificial intelligence companies that focus on industrial solutions. This is the sweet spot for the Communist Party.
1: And if all of that is true, then why the walk back of the regulatory change on these gaming companies?
3: So the government is in a difficult position when it comes to attracting investors. And also keeping a high degree of control over these companies. And the reaction over the past couple of years to the regulations that have come out for consumer internet stocks has been very poor. People have been very upset. Investors have lost. Lots of money. So the government wants to demonstrate that it is sensitive to the concerns of investors. It didn't do a very good job of that a couple years ago, and now it's signaling that it doesn't want these big shocks. It was certainly not pleased with the way the gaming regulator phrased its new rules in December. Reuters reported that the person in charge of this division that released these rules was actually fired after the gaming rules were released. So it's pretty clear that Beijing wants to get the messaging on this right. They don't want massive shocks to the stock market and massive shocks to these companies that are well-known overseas.
1: Right. So in the face of these changing, confusing messages, this capriciousness from the government, what are China's tech giants doing about all this?
3: Well, many of these companies have downsized or decided to split themselves up into smaller companies or sold off a lot of their real estate in these areas. On January 1st, we got this announcement from Baidu, which is the biggest search engine in China, and it's an aspiring AI company as well. And they said that they were canceling a $3.6 billion acquisition of a live streaming company. They didn't really give reasons why, but it seemed like, there could have been regulatory requirements that they weren't able to reach on this. So it's unclear, but this may signal that the regulators don't want companies to continue buying that type of stuff and expand horizontally.
1: Is it also a sign that the ultimate goal here to get a focus of investment in what you say is called hard tech is working? Is that what's going on?
3: Certainly, a lot of capital is going into hard tech. The government has this myriad of investment funds that focus on things like industrial digitalization and industrial AI, industrial internet. And there's been a lot of investment in those areas. And if you just look at the domestic stock market, by far the biggest winners over the past three years have been companies that make chips and robotics companies, things that from the government's perspective really matter. So it's working in terms of directing capital to these companies, whether or not it's going to work in terms of ultimately competing with America and and beating America in AI and in semiconductors. We really can't say right now. And it's a long shot because the state isn't necessarily the best guide for where capital should be flowing. And... They don't have the same type of expertise that private equity investors might have. So it's just not clear if they'll get the returns that professional investors would be able to get on these types of investments.
1: Nor the strategic returns that you're talking about. Uh, That doesn't seem clear either.
3: It's not. There's been some big breakthroughs recently in the semiconductor area so huawei in september released a new 5g phone and this surprised everyone because uh, it was not thought that huawei could produce a 5g chip to go into the phone so they are getting somewhere but they're probably not getting there fast enough and they're probably not using capital in uh, the most efficient way and so on
1: balance then don do you think that this set of policies this ideology as policy is actually good for beijing in the long run
3: So China is definitely creating lots and lots of these hard tech companies, and that might appear to be a good thing right now. But I think there's big questions over whether or not these companies will really be able to make breakthroughs over the next five years. So in that sense, Beijing might be wasting a lot of its money on this.
1: Don, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you very much.
2: The words famous, central, and banker are rarely combined. But Mark Carney is one who can claim international renown. The Canadian first made a name for himself in his home country when he was appointed its central banker soon after the start of the financial crisis. He rose to international prominence when he became the first non-Briton to head the Bank of England. During his stint... He became known for his blunt warnings about the financial risks posed by both climate change and Brexit.
4: Lower growth, higher prices and more unemployment. We will all be hit by a vote to leave the EU, according to the Bank of England. It's what Mark Carney calls the elephant in the room.
2: Now he's back in Canada. And some believe that he's mulling a job with an even higher profile.
0: Mr. Carney is elusive about his political ambitions, but it's clear that he has them.
2: Rob Russo writes about Canada for The Economist.
0: I recently sat down to discuss those ambitions with him at a busy Sri Lankan restaurant in Ottawa, Canada's capital. You know, you mentioning two guys who actually spoke on the phone. And so what did we talk about? Well, we talked about the challenges facing Canada. Everything from our housing crisis to immigration to the need to decarbonize our economy. But what everybody was really interested in is the question that he called the awful question. And that awful question is, of course, is he interested in becoming Canada's next prime minister?
2: OK, before we get into that, tell us a bit more about Mark Carney's path up until now.
0: Well, I mean, there was a certain era when it would have been right out of central casting. Mr. Carney grew up in Alberta. Delivered the newspaper, shoveled snow when he was a kid, great student. So he goes to Harvard and he goes to Oxford, ends up working at Goldman Sachs to pay off his debt, moves back to Canada after making millions on Wall Street and goes to work as a public servant for Stephen Harper, the conservative prime minister, who was so impressed with him that eventually Mr. Harper makes him governor of the Bank of Canada just after the global financial crisis begins in 2008 a real baptism of fire. What does he do? He takes some bold action. And ahead of all the other central bankers, he cuts the interest rate in Canada by half a percentage point just a month after he starts. And that's a pretty swashbuckling move compared to other bankers. And what happens? Canada's economy lurches out of the economic crisis ahead of all the other G7 countries. And that kind of performance impressed other central bankers and other governments around the world and in 2013, he becomes the first non-Briton to head the Bank of England. He was the governor there until 2020. And now he spends half of his time working pro bono as the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. And the other half is spent as head of impact investing at Brookfield Asset Management.
2: What's the current political situation in Canada? Why would Mr. Carney be considering this now?
0: Yeah. I mean, right now, the Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has been around for more than eight years, and he is deeply unpopular. Canada has to hold an election in the next couple of years before October 2025. Polls suggest that almost three quarters of Canadians believe Mr. Trudeau should step down as leader of the Liberal Party before the next vote. Nobody knows if he's going to do that. He said he is not going to step down. But Mr. Carney is often mentioned as one of the candidates that would be interested and likely to step in to succeed him.
2: But has he actually signaled his intentions?
0: He hasn't explicitly. And I, I guess the phrase he likes to use is, I haven't ruled it in and I haven't ruled it out, which of course whets the appetite of political prognosticators right across the country. So I invited him to sit down and have lunch and discuss it. start with the question I have warned you. Why would anybody <laughs> consider running... Politically now, why would anybody consider? Um, well, why would anyone? And so he was elusive. I would say. I asked him, "What is the temptation with politics?" And this is what he said. I didn't know well, know that it's a temptation. Um, <laughs> if you can avoid going into politics, it's better not to go into go. politics for you as an individual.
3: It.
0: So it's clear that he is wrestling with this. That he does have some ambitions. You know, I've talked to those close to him. I've talked to those close to the prime minister. Those who are advising both men say that Justin Trudeau and Mark Carney have spoken repeatedly. They spoke in 2019, before then, when we had an election in Canada about the possibility of Mr. Carney running for the Liberals. They spoke in 2021 before that election. And in both instances, Mr. Carney demurred. But there are still conversations happening. And I think The gist of those conversations are now at the point where if Mr. Trudeau were to offer Mr. Carney a meaningful economic role, he would probably make the leap. And then a lot of people believe it would just be a short hop from there to the party leadership should Mr. Trudeau step down before the next election. But Rob, why do you think he would want this job? Well, like a lot of people who are interested in political leadership, He is not burdened by self-doubt. You you know, in order to be any kind of political leader, you've got to be ambitious. But he also clearly cares about Canada and its future. You know, I care about this country and I care about this country being a success. And and I do think we, like others, face enormous challenges. When I asked him about these challenges, he pointed to three in particular that are facing Canada. That's the rewiring of the global economy. We're talking about changes in trade there. The challenges brought on by climate change and the emergence of artificial intelligence. He has big ambitions for Canada. He thinks Canada should have bigger ambitions as well. As he said to me, Canada can either be a leader or a follower.
2: Okay, so that's his big picture thinking. What does he have to say about Canada's domestic
0: challenges? Well, we have several of them. Like a lot of economies, we're looking at an affordability crisis, particularly with Canadian housing. That's likely to be the biggest issue going into the next election. Over the past decade, under Mr. Trudeau, the benchmark price of a house in Canada has effectively doubled to 760,000 Canadian dollars, which is a little bit more than a half a million U.S. dollars. And that's led to a sinking feeling among Canadians. There's, There's a sense that the next generation coming up will never have the same standard of living as the current generation of homeowners in Canada. People are concerned, right? people are worried. They're worried about you know, falling behind as opposed to getting ahead. Real per capita incomes in the country haven't grown for over five years, so it's very unusual. And uh, it looks like it's gonna stretch on for a while. Uh, they're worried about their homes. I mean, if they don't have a house, whether or not they'll ever be able to afford one. So he told me that he wants to start building houses at a totally different scale. He also cares deeply about climate change and thinks far more can be done to tackle it. And it seems like he thinks he could be the person to lead Canada into the changes that are required ahead.
2: Now, I think he sounds quite liberal in general. Do you think he could win an election?
0: Well, that's the real question. Mr. Kearney is clearly very competent when it comes to the world of business. But I asked him specifically, could he connect with Canadians? Could, in effect, a smart, intellectual member of the financially powerful elite actually connect with Canadians? And I think the way I put it was, could you go to snowy Saskatchewan on a February night and pump hands of maybe 16 liberals who are going to turn out on a Saturday night in a church basement? And he said, yeah, I think I could. I, I like people. But would his technocratic globe-trotting persona appeal to ordinary Canadians? Possibly not. You know, it's been a long, long time since Canadians actually elected somebody who was an intellectual. But as he told me over lunch, this is no time for novices.
2: Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's
0: my pleasure, Rory. Hello, everyone. My name is Carrie, and welcome back to my channel.
5: As you can see by the title, yes, I am going to be reading my diaries today. That's Carrie Walker, and this is just one of the many videos she's posted to social media where she reads her teenage diary entries out to anyone who wants to listen.
1: Katie Bryant is a producer for The Economist's video team.
5: She racks up 1.2 million views for a half-hour read on YouTube. This is my first crush, so May 13, 2011, my first crush ever. There's this guy in my class named Jack Smith. <laughs> and I think he has a secret crush on me. He has been really nice to me. Carrie is what's known as a social media journal influencer. She uses these embarrassing childhood memories to hook people into journaling and extol the mental health benefits of keeping a diary. And she's not the only one spilling her teenage secrets online. There are lots of these storytellers, mostly young women, telling tales from the mundane to the seismic, being dumped by a boyfriend before prom to the sudden death of a parent. The tone ranges from cheesy to heartbreaking. And on TikTok's Diary Talk tag, this content has reached 54 million. This might seem like a new phenomenon, but it actually comes from a long lineage of the diary writing tradition. So many people keep a diary. Surveys suggest half of Americans have kept a journal at some time in their life, especially at the new year, when many people think of starting as a resolution. But why do people write, and who are they writing for? Almost every diarist has asked themselves that question. I spoke to Sally Bailey, an English lecturer at the University of Oxford and author of The Private Life of the Diary. Why do you think it's important that diaries are private?
2: Because we're still making ourselves up day to day. I mean, I think that if you're a real human being, you're still becoming something. And those areas can only really be explored in the realm of the private, you know, in private conversation.
5: She regarded sharing on social media as the antithesis of diary writing. Bailey even noted that one of the most famous diarists, Sylvia Plath, despite being a, quote, theatrical individual, wrote a diary in order to generate a voice in private. But it turns out diaries have long been shared, even if more discreetly than on TikTok. Keeping a journal rose in popularity during the 19th century, especially among women. And in that era, diaries were read aloud, sent to friends and family, all left open for visitors to peruse. Some diaries served practical purposes, sharing advice on self-improvement, pregnancy or childbirth. British women in colonies often sent diaries home, creating a sense of connectedness and community, an ocean-spanning sense of Britishness. And many of today's journal videos also create that sense of community. They share stories of isolation, of suffering homophobia, struggles with body image or romantic obsessions. They often poke fun at the distorted expectations of youth and the disappointments of adulthood.
2: Was I planning on having kids with him? I wasn't even 10 years old. I think I might be going through puberty.
5: (laughs) And some diary sharers go a step further for their community. Queer Diary is a series of events across Britain begun in 2020 by Beth Watson. It's a space where LGBTQ adults read their old diaries to live audiences. The drama, confusion and mayhem of teenage life are performed to a sympathetic crowd.
2: I'm going to Lindsay's house tomorrow to revise. We will try and revise, but somehow we always end up having sex. Oh, well.
5: (laughs) The celebration, Beth Watson says, is as important as the reflection. And that symbiosis of secrecy and celebration was perhaps best understood by a nice nin a 20th century French-born American writer whose diary was an unapologetic exercise in self-creation. Nin's mixture of fantasy and truth included an illegal abortion, extramarital affairs, and notoriously an incestuous relationship with her father. She constantly asserted confidentiality, treating the reader as her sole listener of these illicit stories.
2: You won't say anything, will you? Only my journal knows it.
5: And yet, of course, Nin went on to publish her journal. Its scandalous content won her the fame that her fiction career had not. The confessional text penetrates the thin veil between the public and the private. The diaries are a masterclass in broadcasted secrecy, a megaphoned whisper.
2: We write to taste life twice, in the moment and in retrospection.
5: She spent her last years reading those diaries to worshipping crowds. Like today's influences, she understood the retrospection tastes much sweeter in company.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow.